This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, Embedded with Organized Labor, Journalistic Reflections on the Class War at Home, our guest today, Steve Early, tackles the most pressing issues facing unions today and describes how workers have organized successfully on the job and in the community in the face of employer opposition now and in the past. Early is a labor journalist and lawyer based in Boston. Steve Early, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks for coming on. How's it in Boston today? Uh, very sunny, which is a break from uh, the steady rain we've been having for what seems like weeks and months. Really? Wow. Still, that goes way back. My goodness, that's you're right. That seems like weeks of rain. Beginning yeah. to feel like Portland or Seattle here, but the sun is out today. <laughs> oh, is, is that highly unusual for this amount? Of, I mean, is it un, how unusual is it? Uh, it is. Uh, usually by this point in the summer in New England, it's <clears throat> a lot warmer and drier. Wow. Okay. Well, now, you've been involved with organized labor, if I'm correct, for 30 years. Is that right? Uh, 35, actually. 35. Wow. Well, congratulations. Do, do, do you know if there's a birthday? Do, do you remember the day that, that you really sunk yourself into it? Uh, I do, actually. Uh, I was uh, a volunteer in 1972 uh, in a very exciting uh, campaign in the Coal Miners Union, the United Mine Workers, where a group of rank-and-file miners were challenging the uh, corrupt and crooked and uh, actually murderous uh, president of their national union, a, fo- a fellow named Tony Boyle. And, was that uh, y- Yablonski? Were you yep. Yeah. Well, that was uh, uh, the second attempt to unseat Boyle. Uh, Yablonski ran against Boyle in 1969 and was killed for his efforts after the election was stolen from him. And his supporters regrouped, and three years later they got a new election. And uh, I was a volunteer, worked in the anthracite coal fields, uh, doing some poll watching and supporting, and it was the first time that three working members of a union really had ever been catapulted into the top leadership uh, positions as part of a, a national union movement for democracy and reform. Yeah, real quick, what was uh, Mr. Yablonski's first name? I've forgotten. Uh, it was jo- His nickname was Jock. He was a, yeah. a, a top official of the union who had broken with uh, the President Boyle and run against him and... Uh, uh, shortly after the election, which he lost uh, due to vote fraud, uh, he and his wife and daughter were murdered by Union assassins. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. And what really, back uh, when there was a lot more, well, we'll get into this, but the dynacism within yeah. uh, that, that reform movement uh, back then was really quite striking. But we'll, we'll talk now, about that. Now, your campaign was successful uh, three years later. Is there anything in particular you think you you did or, you know, the the organization Labor did to uh, make it successful, or was it just time? Well, it, it, it the Miners for Democracy campaign was kind of path-breaking in that era. It drew a lot of strength from uh, our community supporters in the coal fields. Uh, it it was strongly supported by retired miners. Many of them were suffering from, from black lung and had been basically abandoned by the union, which uh, no longer fought for better uh, health and safety conditions in the mines. And there was an influx of younger miners, Vietnam vets, uh, militant younger miners who were very upset about the lack of membership participation and control in the union. And uh, uh, that coalition, along with some outside helpers, uh, including myself, uh, really helped transform the union over the next four or five years. Uh, after that, uh, 
where did you go after your success there? Did you? Uh... Uh, I worked with a couple of other union reform movements in the steelworkers and in the Teamsters Union in the late uh, 1970s, and uh, from 1980 uh, to 2007, I worked uh, here in the Northeast as a uh, an international union staffer for the Communication Workers of America, uh, the Telephone Workers Union. We're speaking with Steve Early. The book is embedded with organized labor. And you certainly have been. Uh, during all those That's years... Not to be confused with uh, being in bed with yes. organized labor. <laughs> in bed with organized labor. I, I'll be careful. <sighs> now, over all these years, uh, what what are some of the major changes that you've seen happen? Well, uh, certainly in the 1970s, you had a much higher percentage of the organized workforce in traditional blue-collar industries, like the ones I've just mentioned, coal mining, uh, trucking, uh, the steel industry. And... Uh, Due to deindustrialization, uh, overseas uh, outsourcing, and and uh, globalization of, of production, um, manufacturing uh, and and utility and and transportation jobs account for uh, fewer, a uh, smaller percentage of union membership. But where unions have grown has been in the public sector and the service sector. You see a lot of organizing among janitors, home care workers, hotel workers, particularly out your way in California. Uh-huh. Now, is it just by percentage? I know uh, my understanding is in the non-public sector uh, part of the economy, organized workers are somewhere around. Is it ten percent? Is no, that it's actually lower. It's eight uh, percent, getting down close to seven yeah. percent, the lowest level since the nineteen twenties. Overall, it's about twelve percent, but uh, that's, that's propped up by a, a higher level of unionization in the public sector in about twenty states. Now, as you reflect back, going back to the period of time you're describing, the seventies, was there is there one particular event? Was there a congressional act? Was there something that sort of started the uh, and you 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 mentioned obviously some of the factors which is the deindustrialization the the lot of outsourcing going overseas but was there something in the legislative uh, agenda of that of the that era Nixon and Ford that uh, that really kind of pr- pushed it in that direction? Well, another big factor <clears throat> undermining good union jobs uh, was something that. Uh, was introduced with a lot of bipartisan support, uh, and that's deregulation, de- deregulation of the trucking, the airlines, uh, has affected telecommunications. Um, you know, consumers were promised uh, a lot of benefits uh, in the form of greater competition in those industries that had been more heavily regulated in the past by the federal government. Uh, you know, there's been mixed results on that front, but for workers, uh, it's meant the dismantling of, of uh, uh, strong national contracts and uh, a great uh, downsizing of their ranks in in trucking, uh, uh, in the airlines, and uh, and in the telephone industry as uh, non-union competition has grown. Well, so, so let's move forward. So you, the seventies and the eighties, obviously, we had the, the Reagan administration uh, virulently anti-union. We just have to refer to one. Uh, event that that happened early in the Reagan administration, which was the strike by the uh, by the air traffic controllers, and almost his, in his first week uh, as president, uh, uh, didn't Reagan decertify the union? Um, uh, he did. Uh, this was a, a, a union uh, primarily composed of uh, former uh, uh, military men who'd been uh, military tra- air traffic controllers. They went on a strike in 1981. The, they had supported Reagan. Uh, he didn't support them. He fired them, all uh-huh. 12,000. And that really was a defining uh, movement, uh, moment for labor in this country. It really sent a message that uh, uh, the strike weapon wasn't uh, what it was uh, traditionally, and uh, particularly if workers in the public sector dared to get too restive, uh, they could face uh, very punitive uh, sanctions by their 
government employers. So you look at that as really one of the defining moments of in in this last forty years of of, of organizing. Yeah, because the rest of the labor movement really didn't rally around the Patco workers uh, to the degree that they should have. Uh, there was some uh, grassroots solidarity activity, but uh, too many unions, particularly in the airline industry, kind of stood aloof from them because the Patco union had been kind of aloof from everybody else prior to 1981. But uh, uh, it's had a long-lasting effect. Uh, workers in the private sector uh, immediately saw a much more aggressive stance throughout the, the rest of the 1980s and on into the 90s, and even today by uh, their employers uh, utilizing similar tactics during strikes and taking a much harder line uh, stance at the bargaining table. Now you, you were saying that the air traffic controllers uh, union were aloof from a lot of the other uh, the unions uh, regarding air travel. Uh, are you saying that they bear some of the blame for for this most important decision? Um, no, I, I, I think they made a very bad decision <clears throat> in 1980 uh, supporting Ronald Reagan uh, for president because <laughs> yeah. he ultimately uh, proved to be the executioner of their organization and uh, you know fired and replaced 12,000 of them, broke their union, and a lot of people uh, paid a heavy price for that organizational mistake. I, I think uh, many unions uh, uh, only too late uh, discover the importance of community labor solidarity. It's a two-way street. There has to be a lot of reciprocity. There has to be ongoing support uh, for uh, other unions if you expect uh, them and their members to, to, to come to your aid in your hour of need. And, and there hadn't been that uh, history uh, in the airline industry uh, as of that point, and people paid a heavy price for the divisions within their different organizations. You know, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it, it, it's, a, it's sort of a schism that I've noticed within the, the labor community, and that is you have what, for lack of a better way to put it, you have sort of more Democratic-leaning unions, and then you have a fair number and some substantial uh, unions that I, you would refer to as more of Republican uh, uh, leaning uh, labor unions, at least by leadership. I don't know about the rank and file so much, but the airline pilots, and it sounded like Patco was. Uh, what always surprised me was the Teamsters, at least in its leadership, seemed to be. I know they supported uh, Nixon, and I don't. I know that was kind of a, a relationship that Nixon had at the time with. Um, and I've just lost his his um, name in my my mind here. Yeah, no, they were big supporters. <clears throat> and what what is that about? Nixon what, and Reagan. Yeah, Nixon and Reagan. Are those were those a self just so totally self interested? You know, in the in the regard of they had a relationship with the people in power to to the detriment of this sort of greater uh, ideal of of worker and worker rights and worker um, um, pay. Was there something uh, about that dynamic? Very, very definitely. <clears throat> Back then, uh, the Teamsters were a mobbed up union. Uh, and uh, one of the ways they tried in the uh, successfully uh, for quite a while in the 70s and 80s <clears throat> to fend off federal investigations of corruption within the union was to uh, support uh, conservative uh, Republicans who kind of ran interference for them, uh, the, the uh, Reagan administration and the Nixon administration. Um, ultimately, uh, there was a, a federal uh, a lawsuit that uh, helped uh, Teamster members clean up their union and democratize it and make it a much better union uh, today. But uh, most uh, union members and their families, according to uh, exit polls, uh, probably two-thirds have been voting for the Democratic candidates in, in recent presidential elections. There's always a minority who uh, vote independent or vote Republican. Um, and some unions, I'd say it's a pretty small handful uh, at, at this time, uh, have historically endorsed Republicans rather than Democrats 
uh, more so at the state level than uh, at the level of national politics, as the National Republican Party has gotten pretty pretty anti-worker in recent decades. You'd really be hard-pressed as the leader of a, an organized union, organized labor union today to come out in, in favor of, of what the Republicans' uh, agenda is at this point. And so I guess that's where I was going with my question is, you're seeing, are you seeing more kind of across-the-board um, unity in terms of issues uh, for organized labor in general? Yeah, and I think one reflection of that really <clears throat> was on display yesterday at the White House. There was a group mm-hmm. of 10 or 11 uh, top uh, labor leaders in to uh, meet with Obama and try to nudge him along on the health care reform, labor law reform, uh, and job uh, creation front. And uh, that delegation included representatives of the AFL-CIO, its uh, uh, rival uh, federation, Change to Win, uh, and the National Education Association, which never has been affiliated with either, but represents teachers and is actually the largest labor organization in the country. So they were at the White House to discuss? Uh, Kind of a joint uh, legislative political agenda and trying to work with the administration uh, to implement it uh, sooner rather than later. Were they were they at all talking about the Employment Free Choice Act? Uh, they were. <clears throat> I'd say that the top issue of the day was health care reform, uh-huh. uh, trying to get the administration to do more in the area of economic stimulus, because it's clear that the recovery package enacted uh, earlier this year is not uh, addressing the severe and deepening unemployment problem around the country. Uh, the Employee Free Choice Act has been pushed a little bit towards the back burner, but uh, is still, I would say, the number two priority of uh, of the labor movement. And uh, you know, it's going to take a lot uh, of ongoing grassroots pressure on Obama, on the Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, to get this enacted over what's pretty fierce uh, business opposition. Did, did they have a uh, unified proposal uh, to present to Obama on health care? Uh, I think there's still some differences. Uh, some unions are uh, stronger proponents of uh, single-payer uh, Medicare for All uh, uh, system, like uh, Workers Have in Canada. Others are pushing for a, uh, a public uh, plan that would be an option, uh, an alternative to uh, uh, private insurance uh, provided to people's employment. And, uh, you know, so there's some different tendencies on the health care reform front, but I think there was a lot of concern about some of the proposals that have been coming out to finance health care reform by uh, taxing uh, existing job-related benefits, which should, uh, would really have a very detrimental effect on, on many of the union members who've been able to successfully uh, bargain for better-than-average uh, employer-provided health coverage. Would it be fair to say that organized labor is sort of of one mind when you get down to at least a public option, a viable public op- option within the health care, that while some may want single-payer, which to my great distress, seems to be out of the discussion completely. Uh, it does seem that there at least, is there a consensus that at least we should have an option for a public? Yeah, but I think uh, the bargaining strategy of the labor movement and, and the Democrats and even Senator Baucus, who's been no friend of single payer, I think has admitted this. Uh, you know, if you uh, really want Proposal A, uh, but you're not sure you can mobilize enough support for it, uh, I may have to end up with uh, Proposal B. In bargaining, you don't lead off with Proposal B. You make Proposal A and fight for it as hard as you can, and if you have to compromise, you you settle for Proposal B. They're latching on to Proposal B, which may get watered down, and we may end up with C, which may not be very good, a, a public option that really yeah. uh, isn't viable, as you say, and doesn't provide uh, much of an alternative to our crumbling system of job-based private health insurance. We're speaking with uh, Steve Early. The book is Embedded. Embedded, 
with organized labor, journalistic reflections on the class war at home. And, and also, you know, as long as we're talking about the Obama administration, he had promised to uh, he would amend NAFTA and, and uh, other free trade agreements. It hasn't done much yet so far on that front. Uh, what do you think is going to happen as far as that goes? Well, I think uh, they're going to have to deal with it at some point because uh, uh, the free trade regime, which has been introduced uh, over the last couple of decades with the help of uh, the Democrats, the Clinton administration particularly, continues to erode uh, good U.S. jobs. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's really been backburnered. I mean, uh, uh, more so than labor law reform. The On the campaign trail, Obama and even Hillary Clinton last year uh, were having second thoughts about their prior support of the North American Free Trade Agreement and and uh, other similar deals. Uh, they made noises about renegotiating them and attaching stronger labor and environmental uh, safeguards, but there's been no action on that front uh, since uh, the Obama administration took over. I think for me, just speaking personally, uh, Clinton's support for NAFTA was, for, for me, one of the uh, defining moments of, the, of his administration in terms of where he really who was really uh, running his administration? And I, and I don't know. I understand the alternatives are worse, but organized labor's support for Clinton um, really bothered me after NAFTA, after the passage of NAFTA. I know, I know that they had to swallow hard, but uh, they still did. Um, no, it was a terrible, really betrayal in the in was. the early nineties. Uh, uh, he had a couple of years there only two out of eight when he was in the White House, when there were Democratic majorities in the House and Senate, and he frittered away an opportunity to uh, amend the National Labor Relations Act back then and put all his political capital into uh, pushing free trade. And uh, uh, workers and their families continue to, to suffer the effects of that uh, to this day. I think the issue has to be addressed as part of a solution to the problem of, of uh, immigration, uh, free trade agreements with uh, various uh, Central and South American countries and with Mexico have created terrible conditions there, and that's partly what's driving people north out of desperation seeking work here. So uh, we're not going to be able to just deal with that by expelling people, building walls, and uh, uh, you know, rounding people up at work uh, and sending them home, because more people are going to keep coming until they have viable economies, and uh, many of them have been undermined. Uh, by free trade as well. Well, and that's part of the. And it's not just manufacturing; it's farming. I mean, our our subsidizing of our our uh, agricultural uh, industries in this country drives farmers off their farm. It makes it una- unable for these people to even feed themselves. And not in addition to finding a decent job, but they can't even feed themselves. And it's a whole it's a whole spectrum of things that need to be addressed here. Um, but what? Wh- what, let's get to a couple of – there's a couple of issues here that um, I think we need to get into. Obviously, GM reorganizing the auto workers, we're seeing as a consequence of the collapsing economy what happens when you don't have a manufacturing base in this country, that when you rely so heavily on financial industry, uh, insurance industry, and when that goes south, you can we see the consequences. We need some sort of an industrial uh, base in this country. Uh, what do you see coming that, that this gives you any hope that we're going we're gonna to turn that around? Well, uh, the, the restructuring and the public investment in uh, uh, the big three, uh, to varying degrees, uh, has uh, required the remaining workforce of unionized auto workers to, to make some terrible sacrifice in terms of uh, giving back past gains in the area of wages and, 
and uh, work rules and, and, and pension coverage, retiree health insurance coverage. Uh, I hope it works out for them. I think the union, uh, quite frankly, could have been a lot more cr- creative and proactive in the past. I mean, it tailed along after the companies for years, opposing fuel efficiency standards. It didn't take the lead in, in proposing uh, alternative forms of auto production that would have been more environmentally sensitive, that would have created better green jobs uh, long before now. And uh, uh, not the workers, but I think their union bears some uh, responsibility for some of the difficulties of the of the companies by not challenging uh, the direction that the big three took. I mean, ultimately, it was things like their labor costs due to uh, medical cost inflation that took them down. And, and the companies never joined forces with the union uh, before now, to some degree, to enact health care reform that would have made them uh, more viable. Now, do you think... Uh What's your impression of what General Motors has just done? Do you think they really have a, a good chance of of, uh, of getting back, maybe not to where they were, but not to the point where what's good for General Motors is good for America, but uh, are they going to be the giant that they once were again? Uh, I don't think they're ever going to be the giant they once were again. Um, I think there's going to be some serious uh, problems with worker morale on the shop floor. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on workers to... Uh, uh, because of the plant closings that have been part of this restructuring uh, to, to produce more faster. Uh, there's a two-tier wage structure that's really going to alienate uh, younger workers uh, coming in, uh, doing the same very difficult assembly line jobs uh, at a much lower hourly wage uh, without traditional pension coverage, paying much more for their health insurance. Uh, you know, it's an example of concession bargaining under difficult conditions, uh, but uh, a two-tier wage structure is very divisive uh, within any union. I'm just concerned for the future of solidarity within the UAW dealing with these companies in the difficult uh, years of recovery ahead. Well, how, what's your major concern? I mean, when you say that, you're concerned. I mean, is it is it already divided up and you don't see any uh, any anything gluing them back together, or are there issues? No, I think that uh, that I think there's. The, a morale problem when people are forced to, to take uh, make uh, givebacks, you know, to keep yeah. their company afloat, and when one of the forms of contract concessions are a whole new set of, of, of work rules and, and pay scales and benefit coverage uh, for any new hires, uh, then you end up with a kind of two-tier workforce. It's created a lot of problems in the airline industry and some of the airline companies that uh, back when they were more distressed than they are today uh, negotiated these uh, kinds of concessions ended up. Uh, you know, going back to their old systems because uh, of the workforce problems that it created. I, I think it's just one of many uh, challenges in the in the auto industry, and we'll just have to see uh, if the push that they've gotten from the Obama administration to take production in a different direction uh, succeeds with the support of uh, both our taxpayer dollars and yeah. uh, the workers who produce the cars. For, for me personally, having worked uh, uh, with labor uh, for a number of years, uh, the leadership in, in labor here where, where we live, um, uh, I think that sort of for me, it's always the elephant in the room when it comes to talking about organized labor is the leadership of, of organized labor. I find oftentimes very narrow in their perspective, very, very sort of uh, uh, only concerned uh, about uh, the, the, the smaller picture and not the big picture. Uh, I've been very disappointed in in the leadership that I've seen well, within. You, when you're saying that, you say smaller picture. Do you mean just jobs? Well, it's and, and not just the yeah, jobs, jobs yeah. or the long term. Right, right. It just security. tends to be somewhat myopic. And not to say there aren't good people in in labor unions and some good leadership, but it does seem to be, and also this sort of cannibalizing that goes on within organized labor, 
are, are are these things that you've experienced, or have you you take note of, or am I am I off base here? And no, no, these... I, don't, I don't think you're off base, but I, I and I I strongly agree that for unions uh, to succeed, to revive, yeah. to even survive, they have to position themselves as a defender of of all workers, not just those paying dues, and a broader societal interest. If they're in the public sector, uh, they have to have a program of uh, of uh, how we're going to improve public services. Uh, not just you know preserve uh, public employee uh, pay and benefits, which I think uh, are, are, are well earned and well deserved. Uh, in the telephone industry, we've uh, tried to tie our fights for for job security uh, to the whole issue of customer service quality, which has really deteriorated in in many parts of the country as uh, phone companies have shifted their investment from their old landline networks into wireless and high speed internet. Um, we've had a number of fights in rural areas that basically have been abandoned by companies like AT and T and Verizon. And, uh, you know, when workers form alliances with consumers, with community groups, uh, they're much stronger, and they're no longer perceived uh, as special interests uh, fighting, you know, narrowly uh, just to defend their uh, own little piece of the pie. Yeah, and, and the other point I was making, which is this cannibalizing that goes on, a relatively small pool of people that can organize, and you have these, uh, I, I mean, when the United Auto Workers are, are in the printing business, uh, and 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 there's fights over who you know organizes the printers, and you you hear this all the time. I know you know of all of this, where you have these competing unions constantly poaching into territories that aren't wouldn't seem to be their own uh, uh, in their own um, mission statement, if you will. Well, and it, is it there is any problem? W- there's some of that going on right now. Unfortunately, yeah. the service employees, a very big union yeah. in California, has. Yeah. Uh, uh, picked a fight with uh, its own change-to-win ally, the hotel workers, uh, who have very strong and dynamic locals in L.A. and, and San Francisco, and the service employees has been uh, encroaching on the jurisdiction of the hotel workers, which was not the kind of thing that uh, change-to-win when it was formed four years ago as a supposedly new and different kind of labor organization was supposed to be doing. I think there are situations where, you know, workers... Uh, are understandably and legitimately disgruntled with their incumbent union, and they should have the right to change unions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, to me, that's part of employee free choice. Uh, that's not a popular opinion in the ranks of organized labor. I would distinguish that uh, a kind of uh, freedom of association, free choice uh, from uh, you know squabbling bureaucracies. Uh, sometimes workers can't reform a union from within, and, and uh, as workers are trying to do in the healthcare industry in California right now, with a new union called the National Union of Healthcare Workers, they're they're trying to form an independent union they think will be more democratic and responsive to their day-to-day concerns and problems. What, what is what is there's one thing that you could say to to the leadership of organized labor today uh, that you would say this is the thing this is how how you is it a communication with the American people is it is it is it marshaling your resources what is it that they need to do in order to make their case and to make the American people feel better about organized labor and and the positive impact it can have on all of our lives? Well, you have 16 million members and and many more family members uh, uh, who are union represented, uh, workers who who have union contracts. And I think that's an underutilized resource. It may only be 12 percent of the workforce, but uh, people have friends, neighbors, they have co-workers, uh, the best uh, spreaders of the union gospel, if you will, are 
uh, rank-and-file activists who've, who've uh, uh, gained uh, from their own involvement in, in the trade union movement and who are the best ambassadors for it. And I think uh, we need uh, the rank-and-file really to be involved much more in the running of their own unions. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when labor is perceived as a, a workers' movement, as a uh, movement of rank-and-file people, uh, it is viewed much more favorably than if it's seen as a as a special interest or as a, just another bureaucracy controlled by a few people at the top, uh, not really responsive to the people at the bottom who who pay the freight, pay the dues, and uh, support the organization. Well, I agree, and I think you're absolutely right about that. We've been speaking with Steve Early. The book is embedded with organized labor, the journalistic reflections on the on class war at home. Thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Signal, Steve Early. Uh, thanks for having me. To learn more about Weekly Signal's interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.